Our text is going to begin in verse 21, but before we go forward to the text, I just want to point out a word about the structure of the Sermon on the Mount and remind you, the Lord Jesus began at the beginning of chapter 5 by telling his saints to adjust their thinking in regard to the character traits which accompany God's blessings. And the Beatitudes, we learn that it is not the self-assertive, aggressive, domineering people, but it is the poor in spirit, the meek, the mournful, the pure-hearted who have the smile of God on our lives. In verses 13 through 16, he tells his disciples they are the salt of the earth. They are preventing the decay of the society in which the Lord has placed them, and they are the light of the world to be illuminating those around them with the light of the Lord Jesus for God's glory. Last week we saw in verses 17 through 20, one of the most vital sections of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most important truths in God's word, that the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is the righteousness of Jesus, God's Son. He's the only one who's fulfilled God's word. He's the only one who has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And before the end, he will have fulfilled every promise and every command of the word in every minute detail. And now we know when the Lord Jesus is our righteousness, we can reject the ways of legalism, the idea that by our own law keeping, we're going to be righteous in God's eyes because our good is never good enough. We can also know, on the other hand, to reject the path of lawlessness in verse 19, even as he's promising that surpassing righteousness that we need, Jesus calls on his people to both do and teach his commandments. So in other words, our righteousness comes through Jesus, through repenting of our sins and trusting in him, but having given us his righteousness, he intends for us to live in that righteousness. Starting here, the focus of the Sermon on the Mount turns to that idea about a life of righteousness. What does it really mean to live a righteous life as a follower of the Lord Jesus? Well, in this next section, Jesus is going to show what it means to do and teach the commands of God. And it is more than just external obedience to the letter of the law. It's not less than that, right? External obedience is important, but real righteousness is evident when faith in the Lord Jesus has changed more than just the outside, it has changed your heart. And I want you to see this structure because this section of Scripture is one that I am in the habit of reducing to its simplest concepts. You've heard several times that I've come to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount and I've pointed out, right, Jesus says that murder isn't just the external action, it's the anger in your heart. Jesus says adultery is more than the external action, it's the lust that's in your heart. And that's true and it is helpful to make a point very often, but Jesus is actually saying much more than that. He's about to take us into some surprising directions. With adultery, for example, 
Down in verses 27 through 32, he's going to speak of a refraining from the external act, but say that the problem is the lust that's in your heart, and then also talk about how that impacts your life on a personal level, and even the implications for marriage. And so just brace yourself in the coming weeks, because Jesus' sermon is about to get all up in our business He's going to deal with your anger and your lust and your dishonesty and your desire for personal vindication and your unwillingness to act in basic kindness, right? If you think the Sermon on the Mount is is meant to be easy for believers, (laughs) prepare to be challenged. Starting right here, the Lord Jesus is going to insist that all of those who have come to him for righteousness must adjust your life so that you're actually living according to that righteousness and don't expect it to be easy. This week, he begins with anger and murder and worship. All of these go together. Listen to verse 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, That whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Very young children don't possess a great amount of self-realization, right? uh, Babies are born selfish. They don't think about it that way. And as they grow, it it starts to take a long time before they start to get mature enough to comprehend just how their actions impact others. And it takes even longer before they go past comprehending it to actually caring about it. As we grow older, maturity starts to require a little self-examination. Very young children in the early stages of self-examination will hear the Ten Commandments and think that they stack up pretty well. Like I can even remember back when I was like eight or nine, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Yeah, check. I don't worship other gods. You shall not make any graven images. Okay, check. I have not made any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Mm, Okay, two out of three ain't bad so far. Remember the Sabbath day. Well, that's not a problem. I suffered from drug abuse. Mom and dad drugged me to church every time the doors were open. That wasn't an issue. Honor your father and your mother. Most of the time. Okay, some of the time. Do not kill check. Do not commit adultery. Check. I'm only nine. Do not steal. Next. 
Do not bear false witness. Well, does that mean lying? Because only a liar would say that they don't lie. Do not covet. I don't even know what that means. I probably don't want to know. I'll just mark it like I did okay. So what kind of grade does that give me? If I've added it up, I've missed three and a half. We'll call it three out of ten. That's 70%. Hey, I'll take, that's a C minus on an easy scale. Right, it's a D on a hard scale, but we won't use that one. What joy to think that heaven is going to be populated with C minus Christians. Except as you grow older and you grow in maturity, you start to learn, maybe I don't have any graven images, but I've got idols just the same. And the very fact that there are things in my life that I want to put above and in priority over the Lord means that I do have other gods before him. And we start going down that list and we start analyzing ourselves and we know what's true, but even then we will still say, well, yeah, but at least I haven't murdered anybody. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, okay, let's talk about that. Because just like God judges covetousness and stealing, so that you're guilty if you commit the outward act and you're guilty if you, if you harbor the inward attitude, right? Those are two of the commands. If you actually take something that's not yours, you're guilty before God. And if you want something that's not yours, you're guilty before God. Just like that, if you think that you can satisfy God by refraining from murderous acts, you have failed because you will still walk through your life harboring murderous attitudes. And he is the one who is the judge. He gets to decide whether you're righteous or not. And so what does he say in verse 21? You've heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever shall say to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And so what does it mean to murder? And by the way, murder is the right word here. The word for kill that God used in the Ten Commandments carries the idea of blood, guilt, murder. It doesn't include the justified actions of someone defending themselves or killing in war because sometimes God commanded that. It does not include, you know, um, the act of taking a life as part of uh, capital punishment because God commanded that. This is more than just to kill generically. It is to commit Murder. And here's the irony. When the Pharisees and scribes started to try to define righteousness, they would dig into the most minute details of the law and try to expound everything it is that that law meant. For example, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath day? They would be glad to tell you in detail whether each action you're doing from carrying a needle to plucking out a gray hair counts as work. But they never got into areas of the heart, which is what Jesus is about to do. And if you're preoccupied with the letter of the law, you're going to have 10,000 definitions of what counts as work without ever considering what was the purpose of the command that God gave. But if you have interest in the spirit of the law, 
Maybe you'll spend some time contemplating why God gave each command and you'll know that each command is there to guide your heart. And it's here, it's in the spirit of the law that Jesus says, okay, let's talk about what murder means. In verse 22, he gives sort of this multi-level definition in three parts. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause will be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. When Jesus talks here about speaking to your brother, we need to know who it is that he's talking about. There's a few options of what he means exactly. The least likely option is the way that my father would always do this when my brother and I would get into an argument. That it's talking about your male sibling. Steve, if you see this online, I'm sorry for all the things I called you. That's not what this is talking about. The second possibility is that he means brother like we use in the church, right? The the members of your religious community. And the third possibility is that he's using it in the sense of your brother man or like the brotherhood of all humanity. And it's really not an easy thing to determine since in verses 23 and 24, he's going to use brother in the sense of religious community. But then he's going to go on in verses 25 and 26 to teach the implications of this truth, even in regard to your adversary, which widens this considerably. So I think the wisest thing to do is when Jesus says brother, to understand this as the brothers and sisters in the closest fellowship whom you should love. But in that process, do not forget that later on in this very same sermon, Jesus is going to command that you should love your enemies just like that. The general principle here is that living in righteousness does not change based on your surroundings. Since righteous behavior externally is a display of what's going on in your heart, that should never change based on who's in front of you. You should not act or speak differently with one set of people than you would with another set of people. Do not not come to this and try to use that word brother and apply it like, well, I'll be forgiving and respectful of my brother, but don't expect me to be that way with that no good so-and-so who's on the other side of the political aisle. In this multi-leveled explanation, Jesus says first, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are in danger of judgment. That without cause does qualify your anger, right? There is a place for appropriate anger. We would call it righteous indignation because that just sounds so good. Jesus modeled anger for us. Remember, Jesus got angry. I'm not going to take you to all the places, but, but I'll just remind you of a few of them. When he went into the temple and he saw the, the, it set up as a marketplace abusing people who came to worship, he got angry when, when his disciples turned away those parents who had brought their little children. He got angry when he stood in the, the synagogue with the man with a withered hand there and none of the Pharisees cared about that man. Jesus got angry. 
the common denominator in all of that anger is none of it was about personal mistreatment. You go to the account of the crucifixion and see the personal mistreatment and show me the anger that Jesus displayed towards those who did it. Father, forgive them. (laughs) This is about the mistreatment of others. Most of our anger is without cause. It is unjustified anger due to personal frustration. You are free, of course, to argue that you are righteously angry because some Someone has mistreated another person, but you know that's usually not the case. You are the person that you are most often concerned about. And if you walk around with that anger, Jesus says you are in danger of judgment. The judgment. God's judgment. Second, Jesus says that if, you're, if you say to your brother, Racha, you're in danger. Racha is an insulting Aramaic curse, meaning something like fool or empty-headed. Good for nothing. Well, okay, I've never wanted to use that word, so it's not a problem for me. Well, it's not the word in particular, it is the principle specifically. If you get angry and shout insults, Jesus says, you are in danger of the council, in this case being brought before the Sanhedrin council. And now you think, well, not only have I never wanted that word, you use that word, I sincerely doubt that I'm ever going to be dragged before the Sanhedrin council. Well, just wait, because the third level is going to get you. The third level is whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The word fool here is going to be more familiar to you. It is the Greek word moros. It is where we get our word moron from. Except that it carries more of an idea than that. It carries the idea of rebellious, contemptuous, worthless. If you are angry, and note, in this third one, Jesus does does not put the without cause or with your brother condition on it. He just says, if you do this, if your unrighteous anger looks at another and considers them to be contemptuous and worthless, it makes you a murderer. And you might think, well, Pastor Jason, that's kind of an extreme interpretation. Honestly, I don't think so. Understand, this condemns me as much as anyone here, but if you break God's command, you shall not murder, it makes you worthy of hell. And Jesus says the spirit of that law is that the unrighteous anger in your heart that looks at another with contempt and worthlessness makes you worthy of the same. And again, who gets to judge whether you're righteous or not? It's not me. It's the God who gave this law, who defines this law, who is going to judge you according to his law. It is God who came in the flesh to fulfill the law, right? Remember this, just like God spoke from that mountain and gave the Ten Commandments, this is God in the flesh speaking from a mountain saying, here's what I meant. I gave those commands so you would examine your heart and you would know that it's a mess and I'm going to judge that heart. And he's not done. 
<laughs> this hasn't even gotten hard yet. If the implication of you shall not murder is that God is going to judge the murderous anger of your heart, then the implication of God judging your heart is that no murderous heart is going to acceptably worship God. And before you think that doesn't apply to you, listen, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The relationship of the children of God to one another is of vital importance. We cannot expect that if the relationship we have with our brothers and sisters is broken, that we can still have a heavenly father who is well pleased with his children. And to prove this point, I would just encourage you to search your Bible and find out how many times and how many places God says the kind of thing that he says here. Do not worship me, do not come to me, do not bring a sacrifice or offering, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. Such instances are few and far between. We are told from time to time to praise God, to worship Him, to, to, we're given clear direction on why we are to do it and when we are to do it and how we are to do it. But in few and rare places, we are emphatically told, temporarily, temporarily at least, just stop it. Stop worship until some issues are dealt with. Let me give you an example of another one. Isaiah chapter 1. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah, speaking to the people of God tells them that this is what the Lord says. Verse 10, Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah, right? Starting off calling the people of God, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know there's gonna be trouble. Verse 11, to what purpose is this multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had... Enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. Here, the Lord startlingly declares to the Jews to give up their vain worship. He says, stop doing the exact things he had commanded them to do. The Sabbaths, the feasts, the offerings, even the prayers. He says, look, I've had enough with it. Away with it. I will not accept it. I will not, I will not hear them. Your lives are impure. Your hearts are congested with sin. You make 
You make a good outward show, but inwardly you are nowhere near me. You are nowhere near pleasing me. And even the most solemn meeting is nothing but wickedness. Cleanse your heart. Put away the evil. Learn to do good, and then I will receive you. Then I will receive your worship. This is what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we find these two occurrences differ in some ways, but there's one thing they have in common. It is that the outward act of worship is negated by the inward emptiness or insincerity of the heart. God is not pleased. In fact, God does not honor worship of people whose heart is far from him. When sin has so congested our heart, God is not pleased with it and will not accept our worship and we should stop in our tracks and cleanse our hands and purify our hearts that he might be willing to receive us. Right here in the Sermon on the Mount, we find a plain command given by Jesus to do that very thing. To, he says to the ones who are in front of him, leave your gifts, suspend, temporarily suspend your worship and offering of sacrifices until you have resolved the issue that has hindered God's acceptance of that worship. While there can be and there are multiple kinds of sin that hinder our worship of God, in this text, the Lord teaches that God's acceptance of our worship can be rejected by him based on our relationship to others. Now we understand, I think we need to make a disclaimer. We know that Jesus, the people that he's speaking to are still part of that fading Old Testament economy where they're offering rams and, and bullocks and turtle doves and all those other Jewish sacrifices. And yet, there is still the principle here that speaks of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer to God today. And now you know why I wanted to preach Romans 12, 1 and 2 this morning. It would be an empty argument to insist that this only applies to the people to whom Jesus is speaking that day and it means nothing to us. Rather, it is clear that the principle still applies to us. And if we take Christ at his word, then we have to consider how our fellowship with others affects our fellowship with God himself. It's as if he would say the same thing to us as he said to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, that unless and until you have at least attempted to resolve this matter, you might as well stop your worship because I'm not going to have it. We cannot ignore Jesus' teaching here, and yet we might still try to worship God in our disobedience. I am concerned, and I think you should be concerned, that a great deal of our worship and sacrifice is so tainted by our disobedience that God is not pleased with it. So let's be clear here about what this means. You cannot willingly walk through life being wrong with your brothers and sisters and still be right with God. You just can't be both. 
We can sit in church week after week and yet our hearts be so far from God that he does not and will not receive our worship. You can go to church every time that the doors open. You can tithe. You can read your Bible. You can stand and sing. You can teach. You can even pastor a church and still not be right with God. Your brothers and sisters are just that. They are fellow children in God's family. And you cannot be wrong with the family and still think that you're right with the Father. Right? You cannot come into my house and insult my wife and my children and think that you're okay with me. And I cannot go into your house and proclaim my disgust with your family and be okay with you. And so none of us can come into God's house harboring murderous anger toward our church family and think God is going to find our worship acceptable. He's not. We think that God just must be pleased with us for all that we do. Right? We think like the Pharisees. After all, I can exposit Scripture. I can explain the doctrines of grace. I can uphold the truth of the Lord's church. I'm here every service. My attendance is impeccable. The church gets the first check that I write. I tithe of all that I possess. I sing beautiful songs about God's glory. I use my talents to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. I invite others to Bible study and to church and to special meetings. I amen every good point that the pastor makes about the salvation in Jesus alone. I I teach Sunday school class. I take care of babies and the little kids. I'm the first one in the door. I'm the last one out the door. And I greet everybody in every pew. And all your busy devotion and all your selfless sacrifices are not acceptable to God when your heart is carrying grudges against his children. And if you have a history full of injured people by your words or deeds or, and you've never sought to make it right, you cannot excuse that behavior by assigning it to some special quirk of your God-given personality. And we've all heard those kind of things. Oh, you shouldn't be offended by that. That's just me. That's how the Lord made me. Well, the Lord who made you is right here saying, stop it, change it. Of course, I recognize we do not individually or collectively possess the power to fix every issue that comes up. Sometimes we do what's right. We follow the biblical guidelines. Fellowship is still not restored. We must do what we can. I also know we are sadly incapable of correcting what's in the heart of other people. We can very often commit some of the most grievous wrongs that are not easily corrected. Those people who have been emotionally or physically or even sexually abused, and we want to say, just get over it. Look, they can't just get over it. We don't dare make light of those offenses or think that they have to be able to address it on our timetable. But for our own spiritual health, we have to be striving to forgive others and to seek the forgiveness of others. And our Father in heaven who has forgiven far more from us knows whether or not we are right with his other children by both being forgiving and seeking forgiveness. 
Furthermore, I do not suggest that we shut down worship service, although (laughs) it would not be the worst thing in the world if this sermon got interrupted by some people walking across the other side of the room and asking forgiveness or giving forgiveness or just in the pew where you sit right now, give forgiveness. It It doesn't always require talking it out. It just requires us to recognize we value God's command more than we value our personal pride. And often that we didn't have a right to be angry in the first place. Listen, just because so-and-so sneezed on you or forgot to shake your hand or sneezed on you and then tried to shake your hand, it is not worth breaking fellowship over. The greatest part of peace lies within you. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 8. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. The greatest part of peace lies in you. Some folks will want to say, yeah, our church has problems, and I sure hope so-and-so is listening. Please, as kindly as possible, understand, I'm not talking to so-and-so, I'm talking to you. The message of Jesus says nothing if it doesn't say it to you personally because it speaks to me. God's word makes it very clear how we must deal with strife and conflict when it arises, not if, but when it arises. To follow the command of Jesus, there may well be a time Maybe today, where you go to a brother or sister and just say, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how I acted selfishly. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I should have been more thoughtful. Whatever, Whatever the case, don't just ignore it and go on your merry way with strife and conflict, thinking that God is going to be pleased with you. Jesus says, you can't worship like that. Do what Christ has directed here to be done. It doesn't really matter if you think that someone is holding something against you, but it's not warranted. Jesus didn't say, if your brother has something against you justifiably, he just says, if they got something against you, deal with it. If there's a problem, deal with it. And if you're the one who's harboring anger, don't wait for someone to come to you. Go to them. Maybe they don't even know that you're hurt. And moreover, Jesus says in the text, deal with it quickly. Right here, I'm really tempted to recite all of the bad excuses I've gotten from someone for not coming to worship. There's plenty of them. I get them all the time. You know, I've never heard this good excuse. Pastor, I'm not going to make it to worship this morning because my heart's not right and I've got to go and talk to my brother or sister and fix this problem with them before we can worship God together. I'd accept that excuse. (laughs) Jesus tells us this in verse 25. Resolve it, resolve it quickly. It is the, the most urgent importance. It's going to fester. It's not going to lie dormant. And pretty soon, that anger is going to result in some resentment and some bitterness. It's going to grow and the consequences are catastrophic. In fact, when you read verses 25 and 26, it is 
as if the Lord Jesus is saying to us, resolve this issue or I will and you're not going to like the way I do it, maybe. Look at verse 25 and 26. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into the prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the least penny. The last penny, sorry. The picture in verse 25 is of a lawsuit headed to court. And look, we know that the Apostle Paul tells us Christians shouldn't go to court against each other. That's not what Jesus is advocating here. The description is that you've got two folks who are headed together to the judge. And while they're on their way, literally that word way there means road, they're going down the road together to the same place. There is this brief chance for reconciliation and agreement. And Jesus says, look, take it. Have the conversation. Ask for forgiveness. Give forgiveness. That word agree just means to to make friends, to come to terms, to reach an agreement. Do it because harboring that anger in your heart when you get to the judge, (laughs) you might find out that a neutral arbitrator is not going to be as generous to you as you are generous to you. We're very good at justifying ourselves. For most arguments, a fair arbitration is going to show both sides what they did wrong. That's going to include you. (laughs) And in verse 26, that should teach us that dealing with anger quickly is easier than facing the catastrophic consequences later. Listen, I don't presume to know the hearts of every person here. I do not know what frustrations or offenses have piled up over the past few years, the past few days, or maybe the past few minutes. I do know that it is human nature to both offend and to be offended. And much like the rest of our nature, Jesus commands us to overcome it. So is this really what Jesus expects? I mean, look, I said at the beginning, this takes us in some surprising ways. This is a lot of truth to try to draw out of you shall not murder. The problem is, he didn't start with you shall not murder, did he? Didn't he start with the Beatitudes promising God's blessing on the people who are meek and merciful and pure-hearted and peacemakers? Do you think that he didn't mean it back there or that he didn't know this is where he was going to take us? If you have not committed murder, I am thankful for that, but God also judges your heart and you know what's going on in there. And if you think keeping the letter of the law satisfies the spirit of the law, keep reading these verses because Jesus, the lawgiver, tells us differently. Harboring unrighteous anger, considering someone to be worthless, foolish, deserving of your contempt is nothing less than a murderous heart. Thus saith Jesus, not Jason. Do not presume to worship God like you are right with the Father while you are at odds with the family. He won't have it. Fix it. Make peace. Y'all, this is just the first of 
many examples of true righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to teach that living in his righteousness is going to require some hard actions. It's going to take you to some surprising places. There's going to be behavior that goes against your sinful nature in order to be pleasing to God. And so are you going to take comfort in being a C-minus Christian? Do you think at least I'm no murderer? Well, okay, that's good, but God judges your heart. What is it that he sees when he looks there? 